Welcome to Guilty as Charged, the law behind the crimes. Exploring law and public policy relevant to criminal law here in Arizona, where nothing is out of bounds and all perspectives are considered. Welcome to Guilty as Charged. We're excited to be hosting another episode of our new podcast focused on Arizona criminal law, where we talk about issues big and small that affect the criminal justice system here in Arizona. Today, we're going to be talking about privilege and specifically clergy penitent privilege. Of course, we're always looking for more guests and more topics. If you're involved in the criminal justice system in any way here in Arizona, uh, reach out. You know, we'd love to hear about any ideas that you have for topics or maybe we can bring you on as a guest. If you're interested in it, there's probably other people that are, too. You can always reach out to me on Twitter, Facebook, shoot me an email, a text, and let's let's get you scheduled and we can do an episode about whatever it is that you're interested in. Of course, remember as we are talking and sharing today that the views and opinions that we are expressing are our own. We are not speaking or sharing any opinions on behalf of any clients, employers, or any other entities that we are affiliated with. But jumping right in, we're excited to have Ryan McCarthy with us here today. Ryan and I have been friends for quite a while. We'll keep the bios short as always, but Ryan has worked as an attorney dealing with criminal law here in Arizona for several years. He's currently working as a prosecutor. He's worked in policy at the Corporation Commission, um, and he's been involved in several groups of the Thomas More Society and the Ethics Advisory Group of the State Bar. Ryan, thanks for coming on. Jake, thanks so much for having me on the podcast. So the priest penitent privilege, is this something that we're just barely dealing with? Is this an older thing? Where, where does this come from? What are we talking about? Yeah, I think just uh, for our listeners here, uh, it might be kind of important to place the clergy penitent privilege among some of the the other privileges that that are recognized in the law. Some of the other privileges we deal with a little bit more often, the privileges are essentially that the law recognizes that there's a special relationship that is in need of protection. And, and that the law sort of shields those communications from being aired out in the public, right? Or being aired out in a trial or a deposition. And that the law understands that there and respects that there's a special relationship that from a policy perspective is in need of protecting. And, and they do so over and above the truth seeking the importance of seeking truth in an inve- any kind of investigation. So the other privileges that, that our audience might recognize, the attorney-client privilege, the husband-wife privilege, a doctor-patient privilege, right? These are all other types of, of privileges. And and uh, Jake, maybe you have to have me on the show. We could walk through these other privileges maybe. But for today, one of the other privileges recognized in, in the common law is the, the clergy penitent privilege. And uh, and again, these other privileges, we recognize that there's this important relationship and and that in that relationship, there's an expectation of confidentiality between the parties, right? The attorney and the client, the husband, wife, doctor, and a patient. And in a similar way, right? The clergy and the, the penitent have this relationship too, right? Where there's this expectation of, of confidentiality in that relationship. So where does, the, where does it come from? Jake, you asked if it's, if it's new. It is certainly not new. The the privilege, in fact, goes back as old as uh, the Christian church, essentially. The idea of this privilege goes back to essentially the sacrament of penance or reconciliation. 
so you picked out among your friends the uh, you, the the Catholic <laughs> attorney that you know. So I guess I'm in a position to you know to to share that uh, that aspect of it, right? But truthfully, like I think that is the the basis of this privilege, right? It goes back to the sinner coming before the priest and and divulging their sins and seeking absolution from the priest and absolution from the church from for those sins, right? In the the sacrament of confession. In fact. The law, some of the cases that actually say, look, the the church actually tells the, you know, requires in a sense, right, that the sinner bring those sins to the priest, right? Because that's where the sinner is going to receive absolution. And in return, the church has always held essentially that there's a sacramental seal over that that sacrament. So I actually pulled up as a as a good Catholic here, I actually pulled up the uh, catechism here to share with the listeners here. So in uh, paragraph 1467 of the catechism, it says, given the delicacy and the greatness of this ministry and respect due to persons, the church declares that every priest who hears confessions is bound under very severe penalties to keep absolute secrecy regarding the sins that his penitents have confessed to him. He can make no use of knowledge that confession gives him about the penitent's lives. This secret, which admits no exceptions, is called the sacramental seal, because what the penitent has made known to the priest remains sealed by the sacrament. So the very severe penalties traditionally is is if a priest breaks the seal of confession, they could face excommunication essentially from the church. I think that's essentially the the background, right? Like that's where the privilege comes to us is is this idea that that individual who, you know, in the Christian world who has has sinned and needs to confess that sin, going to the church to confess those sins, uh, and then in return, the church gives this confidentiality. Yeah, and and I I should say first of all, thank you for catching me. I, I refer to it several times. I think as the priest penitent privilege. I think historically that's often what was referred to, but today we do call it more the clergy penitent privilege because of course it is not just a rule or a law, depending on what, what we're talking about to protect, you know, just uh, religions that have priests, but all clergy members. But yeah, it is often associated, as you've mentioned, with Catholic priests because of the strength of the their belief in the confessional. But it is interesting, you know, as, as part of looking into this a little bit more, I looked up how many different churches have some kind of a belief in the sanctity of the confessional and everything from Catholics to LDS practitioners to Jehovah's Witnesses to, of course, the Church of England also has similar beliefs. And there's there's a number of churches that feel strongly about this issue. And it does become kind of interesting in our modern age as, as we're dealing with many different problems. We're going to get into it a little bit later, but of course, related to child abuse that kind of make it interesting. But let's start, you know, kind of going back a ways. There's a case, People v. Phillips, that's one of the first cases that dealt with this issue of the confessional. It comes out of New York in 1813. And that one had to do with with stolen jewelry. And of course, they were required once they confessed their sin of stealing this jewelry to return it. And the court in, in New York, what was that finding there, Ryan? Yeah, that's that's right. And I think this is one of the earliest cases in, in, uh, in the U.S. and America that references the priest penitent uh, or the, sorry, the clergy penitent uh, privilege. And you're right, it, it looks like essentially the defendant who has committed robbery uh, confessed to the priest. The priest told you know the defendant to essentially 
make amends and to return the property. And uh, and that's what the defendant did. I guess in doing so, he referenced something to the effect of, well, I had to bring this back. The priest made me do it. <laughs> was, because I'm always kind of curious. How do, I was curious in these cases. Well, how do they figure out that bad guy you know, had this confession with the clergy, but I guess sometimes they just say it to the police. So then, you know, essentially the police went to the priest and said, well, we'd like that full confession, right? We'd, uh, we'd like to know uh, what the defendant uh, told you. And the priest said, you know, basically under no certain terms will I do that. Uh, I will not discuss, you know, what we discussed in uh, in the confessional. And it was brought before the New York courts here. And it's interesting that uh, they decided essentially as a matter of First Amendment grounds, in fact, that the priest would not be required to divulge what was said in the confessional. The, the court said, quote, it is essential to the free exercise of a religion that its ordinance should be administered, that its ceremonies as well as its essentials be protected. You know, I think it was interesting that I read somewhere that uh, that even though this early case, People v. Phillips, essentially grounded its logic in the First Amendment, that what proceeded thereafter was a movement to make this privilege statutory so that the cases that follow across the country moved away from the First Amendment analysis of whether or not you know, the contours of the First Amendment and what it requires in this area, it looks like it moved pretty quickly to being a statutory question because states, when they realized that this was going to be a live issue, almost unanimously, state legislatures across the country passed statutes to protect the clergy penitent privilege. And so just looking at kind of the cases as it proceeded, that's sort of how it appeared to move from the early cases. I found it interesting, Jake. I don't know if you found there was not a lot of Supreme Court cases on the priest penitent privilege, sorry, the clergy penitent privilege, but there's been some dicta that I did find. So there was an 1875 Supreme Court case called Totten v. United States, where again, it was not, it's in dicta, it's not a holding, but they do mention in passing essentially in that case that, uh, quote, suits cannot be maintained, which would require the disclosure of confidences of the confessional. There is this sort of understanding among the people in general, I think, that this is a relationship that is in need of protection. And it's been uh, referenced by many courts. And so I think the only real question isn't that the privilege exists. I think the real question kind of among the courts is what are the contours of it? Who holds the protection? You know what kind of facts need to be shown to find that the privilege exists, that kind of thing. Yeah, and we're, we're definitely going to get into some of those things. You know, it's interesting just as we discuss that history as we come in. You're right. You know, it's been something that's been around for basically the entirety of the history of this country, and and largely courts have said that it's based on the common law. There is some dispute, interestingly, about whether in the UK there's a belief that it's based on the common law, but many other countries have similar rules or a similar understanding of the protections that the clergy have and not being required to share what's been told to them in the confessional. And everything from Australia to Ireland, frankly, most of the countries in Europe are going to have similar, either similar rules or at least similar questions about what should be disclosed and when. And like you said, of course, across the country, similar questions about about what are the contours who holds the privilege the power there now but this is an Arizona focused podcast so 
now getting into Arizona specifically, what is the basis for the rule here in Arizona, the clergy penitent privilege? Sure. We do have statutes both in the civil context and uh, in the criminal context that recognize the privilege. In the criminal context, ASR 134062 recognizes it says that a person shall not be, it essentially says these individuals will not be examined uh, in a court of law. And it says a clergyman or priest without the consent of the person making the confession as to any confession made to the clergyman or priest in his professional character in the course of the discipline enjoined by the church to which the clergyman or the priest belongs. And there is, again, a very, a very, very similar statute on the civil side, and that's ARS 12 And that says, in a civil action, a clergyman or priest shall not, without the consent of the person making a confession, be examined as to any confession made to him in his character as a clergyman or priest in the course of discipline enjoined by the church to which he belongs. Ryan, I'll jump in yeah. real quick and just say it, those statutes are very similar. And one thing I found is looking at the different case law here that some of that case law we'll get into here in just a minute, but the courts don't tie themselves to just one or the other. So for example, if it's a civil case, they don't only reference cases that dealt with ARS 12, 33 but they'll cite to cases in either the criminal or the civil context, because I think there's a general understanding at the appellate court level here in Arizona that the statutes are similar enough, the rules related to them are similar enough. And so even though we're going to focus on criminal law, we will talk about several civil cases today because the courts seem to think that they're similar enough that they help understand each other. Yeah, exactly. I think that's right. And I think the, the courts have essentially said, you know, we're going to deal with this privilege in, in and of itself and not try to parse out these would be the rules that apply for the criminal side. And then here's the rules that apply on the civil side, which makes sense given the language. Before we look at it in any other detail, there is, I'll just reference, there are just a couple other statutes, ARS 8, 805C, and then Title 46, Section 453. Also, again, those are in the context of child welfare, essentially. And, and again, they have a very, very similar rule. So I won't read that out, but a very similar rule there as well. And then one other thing that we might want to reference to, Jake, is the exception among the must report statute. So in Arizona and in a lot of other states, we do have what's called a, a must report statute with regards to child abuse. And again, I think the must report statutes are a response, frankly, right, to a number of years where we've had different scandals regarding the abuse of children. And mm-hmm. The must abuse or the must report statute, I believe, is 13 3620. And it essentially says that any person that reasonably believes that a minor has been the victim of abuse or is the victim currently being abused shall report to essentially report to the police or other authorities. Now, interestingly enough, right, that kind of statute would seemingly require a, a clergy someone in the clergy to report if someone you know confesses to you know having abused a victim but again even in this context which again it's a very serious context right you know we have a very high incentive right to protect children and the the law has a very high incentive to protect children but even in this context there is an exception for clergy so it provides again a member of the clergy who's received confidential communication or confession of a person's essentially in this arena 
even among abuse, if the information is is received confidentially in that person's role as a member of the clergy, they can withhold from reporting. So, and we should uh, add that's currently the law in Arizona. There has been some attempts to change the status of that law, and and across the country, frankly, for better or for worse, there does seem to be a trend towards more limiting, or in some situations, even removing some of those exemptions for clergy in the shall report statutes. And so, you know, this is more of a, you know, we call it recent in the law, but of course, you know, some of these shall report statutes, Arizona's, I think goes back to the 1960s. In legal terms, that's a little bit more recent, but there has been some attempts in several states and in Arizona as well to say, no, clergy are always required to report, even when it comes through a confessional. And there becomes more case law on that, whether the First Amendment requires something different, as we already kind of mentioned briefly, about whether it's a good idea. But the law is pretty clear right now that clergy are not required to report, as you mentioned, for those very important and very legitimate religious freedom issues. But there is some attempts to make some changes there. Right. I've seen that as well. And I think the reason you know, the reason why it comes in the context of children, not surprisingly, I think, is that we have such a high interest in the protection of children, right? And that's, I think, where the policy of seeking the truth and the truth-finding function of the law, right, comes right up against this inclination, this tradition of protecting the clergy you know, penitent privilege, right? And so I think that's why the prote- you know, the protection of children sort of raises the stakes, right? raises the stakes to a level where where a lot of folks have started to wonder, well, maybe in the normal context, we'd be fine if it's a robbery or or some kind of other offense. But the protection of children, you know, sort of raises the the stakes for some folks. And I agree with you. I think some across the country have questioned that, whether or not it should still hold. It's something to be interesting to see in the future. I think a couple of different things that to keep in mind too is that we read some of the statutes those kind of like the courts have analyzed them as just sort of breaking down into different elements. So it's not as if the privilege will apply under any circumstance or any relationship. So the courts have typically said, you know, look, this privilege is only going to apply specifically if, for example, you know, the first element would be, is the person receiving the confession actually a member of the clergy, right, within their church, to whether or not the confession was made while the uh, member of the clergy was acting in their professional capacity, and then three, whether or not the confession was made during the course of discipline and joined by the church to which the clergy and the penitent belong. So again, this is sort of a way of putting a little bit more you know, meat on the bones in terms of when the privilege applies. So for example, if someone is just talking to a member of the clergy, let's say they run into each other at Home Depot and they start having a conversation and, you know, the penitent thinks there's not many people around. This is a good time for me to start divulging, you know, divulging their sins to the member of the clergy. It might be an open question whether or not that kind of communication in that setting would be protected or not. And maybe it depends on when and how the church, the contours of when and how that particular church does these kinds of meetings or or confessions, right? If the practice of the church is only to have confidential communications at a particular time and place, and then these communications are happening outside that time and place, then it maybe they leave open the argument that the privilege doesn't apply in, in those settings. So 
you know, and again, that's why, you know, it may be dependent on, again, how the particular churches, how they have this function, right? Yeah. And, and also maybe even to make it a little bit more explicit, you know, kind of you're talking about what leads to the privilege. It's not that a clergy member can never report. Let's just go with the example of child abuse, because like you said, it seems like that's where it often comes up. So it does apply in other situations. You know, we already referenced people v. Phillips out of New York where they can confess to stealing jewelry and that would also apply. But it seems like it often comes up in child abuse cases. If the perpetrator of that crime goes into the confessional and confesses, then pretty clearly at this point, Arizona law would protect those statements and not allow that to be used against the perpetrator of the crime. However, giving a, a different example, if the priest or the clergy member or the bishop or whatever it might be were to walk into the church one night and find the perpetrator committing this crime, abusing a child. At that point, he would be a mandatory reporter or she, and they would have to report what they observed because that didn't come through a confessional. It came through personal observation. And the law makes that pretty clear. Yeah, that's a great point, Jake. That's right. It doesn't just apply like a, a large cone over top of the clergy or the church in, in, in every circumstance. The idea of the privilege, again, is is to not give some exception for churches to somehow allow bad things to happen without you know the light of day. The idea of the privilege is to protect those communications within the a confessional situation, to protect the confidentiality of those communications, and to allow and encourage people to be able to do that, right? So, you know, we've talked a little bit about the policy, right? But that's sort of the impetus behind allowing the privilege, right? Is to allow for and encourage people to seek out spiritual direction, to seek out reconciliation from the church, the counseling that they need, and to speak with somebody that they can do so in absolute confidence. It's not to shield people from the consequences of bad behavior. Yeah, absolutely. Now, you had brought up a little bit before about who holds the privilege. So who, who does hold the privilege generally under Arizona law? Is it the clergy member or is it the penitent? In general, it is the penitent. It is the penitent that holds the privilege. You know, in a similar way, like I, I mentioned the other privileges at law a little bit earlier, a little bit similar to how the client's holds the attorney-client privilege. It, the case law in Arizona has recognized that the, the penitent holds the privilege. In the statutes, it's interesting because the statutes we, we reference 1340-62 and then uh, 1222-33, you know, essentially do provide, right, that it, right in the middle of it, it says without the consent of the person making the confession. So that kind of orientates it towards the penitent. It's interesting that in the other statutes I reference, 805C, for example, doesn't specifically state that it's referenced to the penitent, but case law has in Arizona. So for example, in 1988, there was a court of appeals decision written by Judge Fidel. Again, LB, I believe it was LDS Church versus Superior Court. I don't have the citation on me, but essentially... They looked at all of the statutes and from their perspective, they said, well, we see for sure that the penitent holds the privilege and we're not going to decide in that case whether or not the clergy also might independently have that privilege. So they said, in this case, we don't essentially have to make that decision. In fact, the LDS church in that case asked the courts under the First Amendment to find that the clergy did have this independent 
that they should independently hold the privilege as well. The court said essentially that argument raises complex issues far beyond the present record, and we need not address them in that case. So that's what I've seen in a couple of different cases, right? Is that they are, it's very clear that the penitent holds the privilege, but I think there is this open question and arguments have been made in Arizona as to whether or not the clergy should also have that right as well. And what again, what we mean by that is should the clergy be able to assert the privilege in and of themselves, regardless of whether or not the penitent decides to waive the privilege or not, and whether or not the clergy in their position as clergy, whether or not they have the right to assert the privilege on their own. Anybody that follows criminal law here in Arizona is probably aware that there's kind of been an ongoing case out of Bisbee that we're kind of working our way up to, to talking about, and it does relate to waiver. And so that's kind of one of the things we're going to spend a couple minutes on, like all you know areas of privilege, whether it's attorney-client privilege or doctor-patient, it is possible for the holder of that privilege to waive it at some point. And so let's do turn a little bit to that, because like you mentioned in that case of the, the Church of Jesus case? Christ uh, versus Superior Court, yeah, the 1988, and we can call it the 1988 case or the, the decision by Judge Fidel, just so everybody knows that it is 159, error is 24, if you're wanting to look up a little bit more about that. But in that case, again, it related to child abuse, sexual abuse of a child. And the individual went to the police department and confessed that they had been abusing, frankly, several younger females, and that he had confessed that to LDS bishops previously. And the court there considered that. And what was kind of their analysis there, Ryan, when they looked at his statements to the police department and how that affected waiver? I believe the court, it was interested in the issue of waiver in a sense that the court, I think, indicated for future cases, and we'll talk about it here in the with the Bisbee case here too, the court indicated we are going to look at all the facts and circumstances to see whether or not by the penitent's actions, we're going to find whether or not they've waived the privilege. So in this, in the 1988 case, they found that there was an implied waiver of the privilege. And so when we get to the Bisbee case, you'll see that kind of working working off these older cases, a lot of the litigation that's happening now is whether or not by the person's actions, they've had some kind of waiver of the privilege, either explicit waiver or as the Judge Vidal found, the implied waiver based on their actions. Let's go ahead and turn to that Bisbee case. You know, obviously these are very tragic facts. But discussing it in terms of, of what we're discussing here with that privilege, what happened there and, and kind of go into that waiver question a little bit more, if that's all right. Yeah, definitely sad facts. It arises out of a, a civil lawsuit that by two young victims of sexual abuse. Now, this is against both the LDS church and two bishops of the church. Now, our bad guy, the perpetrator, was the father of the plaintiffs. For a period of time, he was a member of the church and the LDS church. It looks like he was excommunicated in 2013. The issue about waiver, part of the issue of waiver is that the perpetrator himself posted some videos to the internet regarding the abuse. Thankfully, they don't go into too much details as to what that means. But for our purposes, he made public to some extent the abuse. And in 2017, the, so this would be after the videos had posted and after he was excommunicated. The perpetrator is arrested. He confessed to his crimes to police, was indicted, 
and and then he subsequently committed suicide which is of course why he's not involved in the lawsuit now is right because he did kill himself and so now he's not present and right. so it's, i think that becomes more of an interesting fact on the civil side and you know, we won't get into it too much on the criminal side but this is such tragic facts about how these two young girls were raised that feels like somebody needs to be held accountable to some degree and he's not there to be able to do that but that's right. And so from a gut standpoint, the, the main perpetrator here is gone. And then what's also interesting from this perspective of the clergy penitent, well, actually, let me get to this. So the reason the, the privilege comes up is that one of the bishops acknowledges to law enforcement that they did have some knowledge that the perpetrator had been harming his children and that the perpetrator was advised essentially to, to turn himself in. So this fact comes out, right, that in fact, there had been before he was excommunicated that bishops of the church, you know, were aware that this abuse was going on and they were, you know, essentially counseling him, right, to stop doing it and to turn himself in, right, and to to make amends for his actions. So that's kind of how this issue then is raised because in the civil lawsuit now, the plaintiffs were seeking the disciplinary file of the perpetrator from the church, right? They're seeking depositions of the bishops and other members that were involved in essentially you know, these meetings, right, between the church and our perpetrator. Before we get to the analysis, Jake, I thought, you know, it's interesting. It's interesting that the bishop decided to speak to law enforcement about these meetings in the first place. Do you think that the bishop would be within his or her right in the first instance to say, I'm not going to talk to you about whether or not we had meetings with the perpetrator? What do you think about that? Yeah, no, I actually had similar questions. I know from news articles, not from the case itself, I believe that there was actually two bishops that he confessed to, and I might be getting this wrong, somebody in some way was a law enforcement officer. And I don't remember if it was somebody that was in the congregation there with them, Mm -hmm. but it was interesting to me, like you said, I was curious whether this bishop went and found law enforcement, just said, just so you know, I know this, or whether it was more that they had a personal relationship and he just happened to mention yeah, I was actually aware there was some harm going on and he got excommunicated before. Right. But in any case, I do think that, yeah, both because there are shall report statutes in Arizona and because there's of the privilege, both statutory and possible First Amendment issues kind of that we mentioned, I think the bishop would have been within his right to refuse to answer any questions related to what he knew related to the abuse. But I don't know. What do you think? Yeah. Well, yeah, and I think that's actually the position that the LDS Church has taken in the proceedings, which is essentially, well, yes, we're here now and we're not going to deny, right, what happens. But essentially, I think their position is that this is protected, right, and that the members of the the clergy shouldn't be required, right, to go to deposition to speak about these communications. But I sort of had this on the front end, I sort of had this question of like, well, the cat was out of the bag. Maybe the cat shouldn't have been out of the bag <laughs> to begin yep. with. Yeah. No, that, but, you know, maybe it's it's a small town, right? If it's out of Bisbee, small town, small church, right? You know, and as you said, like if people have multiple dual roles too, that's kind of another interesting question, right? Is it is whether or not this is complicated by the fact if one of the bishops is actually a police officer, that would be a unique question, wouldn't it? Yeah, well, and especially in this case, like I said, I I don't remember exactly what the roles were, but somebody involved in it was law enforcement. I can't remember if it was one of the bishops or just somebody else. But the other thing is, I think somebody else, I think one of the bishops was the family doctor, which is, of course, you know, this today we're talking about clergy privilege, but that also raises doctor patient confidentiality. And there's different reporting statutes for them and and different rules for doctors. But yes, you know, one thing 
getting to that, Ryan, that I, I did find interesting is as I was reading through a number of these cases related to privilege, a lot of them seem to be about the LDS church. And I found that interesting because like you already mentioned, the Catholic church, which is a much larger percentage of the state of Arizona and has more of a historical, you know, longer lasting belief in the sanctity of the confessional, I would have expected there to be more Catholic cases. And it did seem to be LDS heavy. And so I did wonder if it had to do kind of with what you just mentioned, that obviously priests within the Catholic Church, that's their singular role, whereas bishops within the LDS Church tend to have other, you know, they they have careers and, and roles outside of their church position. I wonder if that's ever a complicating factor for them. I agree. That might be because I, because I think just the issue, when you think about these cases, it does not, the clergy penitent privilege does not become an issue if and until it becomes known, right, that the individual was, went to confession to a particular priest. And so that, it's interesting because that meeting in and of itself, a priest would never even acknowledge that it happened, right? They would never even acknowledge that somebody came to them for confession. They would politely say, essentially, I'm not answering that, I'm not answering that question. So I, I wonder if maybe that's part of it as well. And, and they, as you said, sort of the, the dual, the fact that it, in the LDS church, people have different functions or wearing different hats. But you know, as we mentioned earlier, Jake, I read an interesting you know, part of the history of this privilege was that a couple of the early states essentially were sort of handpicking which religions were going to get the privilege. And so they said, essentially, you know, the Catholic church gets to have it. And I think they referenced the Anglican church and potentially Luth- like Lutherans. And that was it. And so pretty early on, it was challenged as essentially being unconstitutional and was the statute was rewritten because you know on the flip side we talked a little about the free exercise right whether or not somebody well how we essentially so we talked about how the privilege protects someone's free exercise of their religion to seek confession i think that would implicate potentially the establishment clause right which is can't give this privilege just to the catholics because of how it looks right because of the uh, you know going into the confessional and that kind of thing that similar protection, I think, as a matter of First Amendment law, needs to apply to every religion. Now, here's, I think, where it could change, though, which is the law sort of allows for this privilege, but there are certain elements that have to be made, right? There's certain elements that have certain standards that have to be met, which is, is the confession made in a a confidential setting, right? Is it intended for confession and reconciliation, right? Is this communication made for reconciliation? Like, what's the purpose of it, right? So so it's sort of the courts are going to look and see, like, does it have this character, this nature to it? Okay, so should we should we go back to our Bisbee case? Yes, yeah, so let's go to the Bisbee case. What, how does the waiver actually then come up? So the trial court actually finds that our perpetrator who perpetrated the abuse did waive the privilege, the quote, by essentially, quote, by the person's overtly public admission to the abuse of the children, right? So the perpetrator had made this public admission, admission, so the privilege is waived. Now, I have some some sympathy for the trial court because, in a sense, that's analogous to what we might say the attorney-client privilege is, right? So you have the privilege of your communications between client and attorney, but if client turns around and goes to Facebook and just posts like, you know, I had a long conversation with my attorney today. Here's what we discussed. Here's the advice he gave me. <laughs> Some prosecuting agency wants to use that admission. Court is going to look at that person and say, well, 
what did you expect here? <laughs> you you waived the privilege by posting it on Facebook. So I have some sympathy for that. However, the Court of Appeals, so it was challenged, it was brought up to the Court of Appeals. The Court of Appeals said essentially, well, hold up, it's not exactly the end of the story because what we have here is the perpetrator has made known publicly the abuse of the children, right? Which might be sort of the underlying facts regarding either a civil case, a civil lawsuit, or in a criminal case. But what we're talking about with the privilege, though, is the actual communications made between penitent and the clergy, right? And so the Court of Appeals says, we're not going to find waiver here because the our penitent here, the perpetrator, did not reveal the substance of those communications, right? You know, he didn't specifically air what was said, what was discussed. So essentially, I think the Court of Appeals said, all right, we're going to maybe narrow, right, this issue of waiver and find only that it applies if that penitent is actually airing out what was said specifically. And this was, you know, it's interesting too, in light of that 1988 case that we already discussed, because like you said, there they did find waiver after somebody confessed to police, one, that they had committed the abuse, and then two, that they had told certain clergy members, church leaders about that abuse. Here, we, we at least have the first half of that where the person is confessing to committing the abuse. But like you said, because he did commit suicide, we're talking about implied waiver. He clearly isn't actually waiving it since he's no longer you know, alive to do so. Right. But they do seem to kind of say it is a little bit different because he didn't talk about what he said to that clergy, unlike in that 1988 case. Right. I think that's an interesting difference. Now, here's the rub. This is what gets me on these cases. So how about this? Let's assume hypothetically that our perpetrator is alive. And what if, you know, for some reason, the civil lawsuit is still just against the church and the members of the the bishops? What if they don't bring in the perpetrator into the lawsuit? Maybe they get to decide, plaintiffs get to decide who they're going to sue, right? And who they might be able to recover from. In that scenario, what if Adam says, okay, that's fine. I waive, I waive the privilege. And, so, and we should clarify, you said Adams. I don't know that we've actually said his name yet. Adams is the perpetrator of the abuse. Oh, that's right. I apologize. That's right. Adams. I guess that's not a secret since it's in the case here. So I think that's really where the rubber meets the road. And, that, and that's why in the case, right, the defendants here, the, the LDS church, they asked the court and they said, look, that scenario is a live option here and it's going to come up potentially in the future. So I'm sure they argued that there was no waiver, but they asked the court to find, to essentially find that there's an independent right for them to maintain confidentiality of confessions. And the court essentially said, the court of appeals essentially said, we don't need to decide whether or not the 1988 case was wrongly decided and that priests have an independent right to maintain confidentiality of confessions. So there's, they're essentially decided, hey, we're not going to reach that issue. But it seems to me that it's likely to come up at some point, right? And I think that that's a really interesting question. For me, this is sort of the the policy side. I think that there's a good argument that the First Amendment does protect the clergy independent of the penitent. I think that essentially, when you look at a free exercise that goes both ways, right? There's free exercise of religion for the penitent, but there's also the free exercise from the members of the clergy. And I think the same policy issues apply if we're concerned about, if we value, I think as we should, 
that relationship, right? And the confidentiality of those communications. And we want to incentivize people to go to confession. I think it is still undermined if we force the clergy to divulge those communications. I think in a similar way, it undermines that relationship and chills the free exercise of religion for people who are seeking confession. And the other thing I would note too is, you know, I just think it maybe doesn't happen as often, but that doesn't mean it's not going to happen at some point. And I'm just I'm kind of curious whether or not, you know, like in the context of the priest or or any, frankly, any member of the clergy, I'm, I'm kind of curious, well, if we play this whole thing out, is the law willing to hold members of the clergy in contempt if they say no, right? Like as a society, are we at the place where we would give the okay to hold a member of the clergy, you know, in contempt of court, essentially, if they didn't, you know, submit to a deposition, for example, or submit to testimony in court. So kind of curious about that. Yeah, no, it, it will be interesting to see where that goes. And it's kind of like you said, too, previously, this issue doesn't always come up because most of the time we don't know when bad guy A has committed or has confessed whatever he's done to the clergy, because if the clergy is keeping it quiet, like they're saying they require to, then nobody really becomes aware of it. There are certain circumstances like that 1988 case. He told police that he had confessed it to clergy. In this case, you know, the Bisbee case, they mentioned how the clergy member had mentioned it to a police officer, but also the wife was aware of the abuse because the bishop had invited a, the wife in to listen to the, some of those confessions. And mm-hmm. so police were aware because they actually did prosecute the wife for failing to protect the child as well and failing to report the abuse. But yeah, largely we don't, we aren't aware when the clergy knows, but it does come up at times. And at some point, I think the courts are going to have to address that issue. I think you're right. Yeah, I think so. so Ryan, where, where do you think then the, you know, while you're on that topic and maybe we just finish up here, where do you think the law goes from here, both statutorily or case law? Where do you think we're heading? Where do you, where do you think we go? Do you see any significant changes in the near future? Or do you think it largely just kind of stays in the balance that we're in right now? I'm not sure, but and this, how about this lawyerly answer? It may depend on where where you live. <laughs> it may depend on the different states, right? In other words, this is an issue that is going to develop organically in different states. And you you might actually see, you know, very different decisions across the country in various states. I think in some states that on you know, maybe it depends on you know what kind of population they have in terms of how many people are church going, you know, folks. In those states, you might see them actually expand the protections of the privilege. You might see them recognize that the clergy independently holds the privilege as well. I believe right now there's only, I think, five states that actually explicitly do that. But you might see more of them added to that list depending on where you live. However, in other states, maybe again, maybe it's dependent on how many you know folks are church going or not, you might see a constricting of that privilege. That can happen in a few different ways. Again, one, not recognizing the clergy having an independent right to the privilege. You could see some restriction based on, again, how the privilege, those different elements that we talked about, right? The where, when, and why, and how. You could see courts restricting or making up essentially other restrictions that say, you know, it can only be found in this particular area. You could see a waiver being uh, viewed at broadly, right? And if there's broad waiver, then you could see more often the case where clergy may have to testify. 
you know, sort of like we said a little bit earlier, I'm really kind of curious to see a case that maybe hits the national news that sort of hits it right on the head where I'm curious to see, you know, how far courts would, would be willing to go really to push the clergy. And that might, you know, awaken people to this issue. Because again, just as we said before, I think it just doesn't come up uh, as much. But there is this, you know, there's the cases that are still making interpretations on this area. And so it, it will assuredly come up again. So I have to ask real quick, Ben, I know I said we were going to end soon, but I just need to ask. So by saying that you think it's going to be kind of jurisdictional or, or state, you know, decided at each individual state level, does that mean that you don't think that it will be more of a First Amendment analysis going forward, that you think it'll stay as a statutory analysis? No, I think the First Amendment does have its day in court on this one. It just depends on what my my point was, that, you know, the different courts may have an ear for that argument, right? May have time for that argument or not. There's some courts, I think, that are going to say, look, I've, I've got a statute. I'm going to apply the statute. And I, I don't have time for First Amendment arguments, right? I don't, in other words, it, it just it may depend on the bench, right? Is that bench going to be receptive to considering the history of the privilege in light of the First Amendment? You know, are they going to have time for that argument or not? Well, it's going to be fascinating to watch. I, I totally agree with you. I, I definitely don't think this is a settled area of the law. That Frankly, the difference between this 1988 case and this most recent Court of Appeals decision in this Bisbee case, it's pretty stark. Like These are very different decisions, and there wasn't an overruling of anything. And in fact, this 2022 case, it wasn't even a published decision. But you could see a Supreme Court, either in Arizona or in the United States, determining that either the Arizona Constitution or the U.S. Constitution has something to say about this. It'll be interesting to watch. It'll be interesting to watch. There, like I said, there's been movements at the legislature to change some of the statutes involved. And so both from a matter of, of statutory law and as a matter of case law and constitutional law is when it comes to privilege, especially clergy penitent privilege. And so it'll be fascinating to watch. Ryan, thanks for coming on today. Absolutely. I had a great time. Thank you for having me on. Okay. You have a good one. Thanks all. Thanks for joining us today on Guilty as Charged. Please subscribe to our podcast to get more great discussion about law and crimes specific to Arizona and also get access to Arizona Supreme Court audio. You can find Jake on Twitter at JacobBrownAZ. 